Welcome to the Kielder Observatory podcast. Coming to you at the end of November 2021 and in towards December. I'm Ian Brannan and joining me as always in this episode is the Director of Astronomy and Science Communication at Kielder Observatory, Dan Pye. Now, much of this podcast is going to be on location actually at Kielder Observatory because there has been a development. It's been a long time coming, but finally we've welcomed and had first light through our new radio telescope, which is quite some time to install and you'll hear the full story about that very soon and the sort of things that we can now observe with this new bit of equipment which over time is going to be very useful not just for visitors at the observatory but schools and colleges and universities around the northeast and across the UK and even beyond as well so more about that development to come. First of all, Dan Pai joins us to take a look at the things that you can look for in the night sky over the coming weeks between now and the end of the year. The things that you can keep an eye out for if you do get a clear night wherever you may be, whether you're in a dark sky park, whether you're in your own back garden, the things that you can observe. And if you're a keen astronomer and you've got a bit of equipment, a little challenge coming for you as well. So, Dan, as we move through this part of the year, November into December to the end of the year, what are the things to look out for in the night sky at this portion of the year where we're at now? Well, I think considering we've got the nice dark nights coming in and everything is uh, at its peak darkness, I guess you could call it, or its absolute darkness now, is a really good time of year to do some really good deep stargazing. So looking at objects which are a little bit fainter, uh, that you can't pick out with um, with with more ambient light kicking around in the sky. So those objects might be things like globular clusters or galaxies. Um, these more faint, diffuse objects that, of course, have travelled for much further through our universe and therefore appear dimmer. Of course, they're not dimmer. It's just that they're really far away. Um, so my recommendations at this time of year is to look at things like the Andromeda Galaxy. It's very high in the sky. It's good good time of year to observe that. Uh, you've got the Triangulum Galaxy as well, M33. That's not far away from it, which is quite a dim galaxy, but beautiful spiral arms. And rising uh, as as the month progresses is the constellation of Auriga, which there's quite a few nice clusters surrounding Auriga, globular clusters in particular. My favourite of which is a one which looks like a spiral, the spiral cluster. And it literally just looks like a, a little spiral of stars, perfectly arranged. It's incredible to see through a telescope. So loads of interesting objects uh, popping into the sky over the next month or so. And where are we with planets? Because at this time of year, um, the planets are forever moving. We've had um, Jupiter and Saturn visible for the past few months or so. As, as we we move through this phase of the year which which planets are we are we able to see better at this time of year yeah so we're seeing um, Jupiter and Saturn disappear now across towards the west quite early on in the night but that doesn't mean that there's no planets available it just means they're a little bit more challenging to see um, so after sunset at the moment you've got uh, the planet Venus right quite down low down on the on the horizon but you can see it just after sunset a really bright star across towards the western skies and that bright star is the uber-reflective atmosphere of Venus. Venus has a really dense, cloudy atmosphere. We can't see its surface because of this really thick, dense cloud that surrounds it. Of course, 
cloud, all of those little atoms and molecules we know are very good at reflecting light in our atmosphere is no exception on Venus. Venus is mega reflective. So we end up with super bright star uh, in in the night sky. Some people call it the evening star. That's what it was referred to uh, as for for millennia um, prior to its uh, discovery as being one of these planets. also, we've got, uh, as the as the month progresses, we'll start to see Mercury maybe come back into our visibility as well uh, as we as we start to stretch into the, the start of next year. Um, but if you've got a telescope, then there's two planets which we can see with our telescope at this time of year. And they're in quite a nice position as well. We've got Neptune and we have uh, Uranus as well. Of course, they are very far away. We're talking into the billions of miles now. So that means when you look at them through your telescope, they are going to look like another star. But they may differ in colour. For example, with Uranus, it looks uh, turquoisey, and And you can tell it's kind of a little bit puffier than some of the other stars as well. I quite like to look at it because the thing is with Uranus is... Um, the first ground-based image that we had of Uranus was that it was, it was a, a, a very... Um, boring looking uh, turquoise blob and then we sent missions out to deep space which were able to take high resolution images of Uranus and sure enough when we got that data back for the first time everybody got excited and thought we're going to get a high resolution image of this stunning planet and it turned out that it was a featureless turquoise blob. Um, So it is a very underwhelming planet uh, even if you're right next to it. But that doesn't take away the fact that it is probably one of arguably the most interesting in our solar system because it's tumbling on its side instead of upright as the rest of the planets may be. And there's some news about Uranus. Um, I noticed the last few days about how um, the moons, its biggest moons, might have oceans beneath beneath what currently are quite icy shells. But beneath that, they think that there's um, enough radioactive heat to maintain deep liquid oceans that could be detected by future spacecraft. And these are on the two biggest moons of Uranus, uh, Titania and Oberon. I think I pronounced those right, hopefully. And uh, they reckon that there might be some some oceans lying beneath there, which is exciting, isn't it? Because, you know, look, the search for water, of course, or the search for liquid is is something that we're interested in in, in terms of looking for signs of life as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love the names of the uh, the moons of Uranus as well. Of course, they're all named after uh, sorry um, Shakespearean characters. Um, so that's quite a, a cool little feature to uh, to have all your moons named after Shakespearean characters. It's nice. Um, whereas, yeah, the ocean moon thing is is really interesting because the ocean moon uh, debate is is whether or not those conditions deep in the depths of the ocean are potential conditions similar to what we find around hydrothermal vents here on Earth. And many suggest that life started around hydrothermal vents. So is it that that on these huge uh, ocean worlds or ocean moons that underneath that icy crust, it's actually teeming with microbial life, which has thrived as a result of these hydrothermal vents near that uh, very... Uh, radioactive decayed uh, internal heated core so it's it's quite an exciting thing is there i think ocean worlds of course there's easier ones to get to 
than Uranus, though, and they're the ones that we're going to concentrate on first, such as Europa is probably going to be the the one that we learn most about first. Yeah, it's a bit of a distance, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a tiny little blob, even through really really powerful telescopes, let alone actually getting there to to survey whether they've got uh, water under their uh, their icy crust or not. Um, the other news, I suppose, that's been of interest is regarding this business with Russia. I mean, Russia fired a, a missile to, to take out one of their own satellites, but the knock-on effect of that is a bit of chaos in the the orbits around Earth because they've smashed this... Mis- uh, it's their own satellite that they've done, and we're not entirely sure why they've done it, but they fired a rocket up, took their own satellite out, and now filled orbit with all sorts of junk and little tiny particles, and... Um, I suppose if you've seen that movie Gravity, um, it, it's it's kind of like related to that plot, isn't it? Where we had the astronauts, which include actually some Russians on board the International Space Station, um, having to prepare to, to abandon ship because of it at one point. It's a quite scary time up there. Yeah, it is. And it was such a reckless thing to do. I mean, I don't, I don't know the nature. We can speculate to the nature of, of the reasoning behind why they decided to do this. But nevertheless, it was... A very reckless uh, manoeuvre to make because that, yeah, as you rightly say, has put many people uh, in danger. And all it's done is <clears throat> prevent uh, present uh, further issues for potential projectiles which could disturb other satellites in orbit as well. One of our biggest issues right now and one which is uh, very controversial is the amount of space debris that we have orbiting around our planet and the impact that that has on on other satellites and our ability to be able to communicate globally um, and also uh, the potential hazards that that poses for sending Uh, rocket ships out into the rest of the solar system as well because we have to avoid all of this debris and not so much of falling on our head because in those scenarios much of it will break up in the atmosphere our atmosphere is very very thick and when things are doing 17 and a half thousand miles an hour and plummeting through the layers of our atmosphere they reach a, a region called the mesosphere where things start to get very very dense and in that region that's where the real external heating happens. It can reach temperatures of two and a half to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And with this material, it's most certainly going to disintegrate, probably. Um, so it's not so much of a, an issue for us down here on the ground level, but satellites falling out of the sky kind of thing, but it's more the stuff that's in orbit, such as the, the space station, other satellites, um, and the, the ways of being able to leave the planet uh, being impacted by that as well. And the thing is, it's not just about the big objects either. Um, the the slightly smaller objects, even stuff like flecks of paint. You might think, well, what can something a couple of millimetres do? Well, actually, you can puncture a hole in a solar panel in 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 a second because these objects are travelling faster than bullets. Um, so it's, it, it can do some real good damage, Can even the smallest of, of things. In fact, actually, it's probably more difficult to regulate the smaller stuff than it is the bigger stuff. At least we can see the bigger stuff. And at least if we can see the bigger stuff, we can maybe look at ways of being able to deal with it. And I think it's something which, um, and, and and I probably wouldn't uh, quote me too heavily on this, but there's uh, some projects which are uh, in operation by people such as Elon Musk looking at ways to sweep the skies. So he has an invested interest, of course, in keeping things up there clean and therefore is uh, running projects to clean up the skies and get rid of all of this space debris that is potentially a hazard. 
Yeah, it is a fairly congested place up there. And if you do, in fact, come and visit us at Kielder Observatory, you can you can take a look at um, a live chart of all of the space junk that there is flying around the uh, the Earth at the moment. And it's, it's quite staggering just how much stuff there is up there. And I know many visitors uh, do comment on it when they see it, just how much stuff is floating around, and some of it very, very old indeed. And that's just the big stuff. I say that's not including tiny, tiny things like flecks of paint, which can also cause damage. Right now then, on the Kielder Observatory podcast, as we're in the company of Dan Pye, um, we have our feature called Pie in the Sky, which is a little challenge for you. Now, if you're a keen astronomer and you've got um, some equipment, say, uh, you know, a half-decent telescope or some some binoculars, something a little bit different for you to search out for in the night sky. If you've got a, a clear patch of sky, something to look out for and see if you can find it. So this month, Dan, what is your pie in the sky challenge, Dan Pie? I think um, this month's object should be the Starfish Cluster which is, we've, we spoke about clusters just before there, and it's in Auriga. Uh, so great place to look for these little clusters, and this is one of them. It's called the Starfish Cluster. It's supposed to look like a starfish. I'll let you decide what you think it looks like. You're going to be looking in the eastern side of the sky um, in the in the early evening, and then as we start to get a little bit later in the night, it's going to, of course, rise a little bit higher. But around 10 o'clock, across towards the east, you'll see a very bright star called Capella, um, which forms the base of what looks like a pentagon shape, uh, which is upside down, called Auriga. Auriga isn't a pentagon, it's a, a charioteer, apparently. Um, so just underneath Capella, if you follow the, 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 the line of the Milky Way down, you'll find it just in the plane of the Milky Way, almost in the smack bang centre of the constellation of Auriga. It is, there is quite busy in there. There is a couple of uh, different clusters that you can see, but the starfish one is, um, I think, the top one that we can see in the line of three of them. That's your one to look out for this month then from Dan, the Starfish Cluster. Let us know how you get on, by the way, as well. Do let us know on uh, the various social media channels, uh, Kielder Observatory on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one. Right now to the main bits of our podcast this month, and we've got a feature on our new Spider Radio Telescope, which is a cracking addition to the observatory, not just for how it looks and something really really imposing and striking as you make your way up the hill to the observatory in person. But the sort of things that it can do um, as, and, and, and can listen out for and gives us something that we can use, of course, regardless of the weather. Now, it's it's very important that we stress that this is not an X-ray device and will not see through the clouds and make them disappear in any way. But it's a radio telescope and it's searching for radio signals in space. And through those radio signals, we can get an image of what's happening uh, in space, both with things that are a little nearer to us, but also much deeper into space as well as uh, Dan can explain. So tell us a little bit more about this radio telescope then and and the new dimensions that it brings to Kielder Observatory. Yeah, that's right. It allows us to look deeper into the universe than we've ever been able to look before. We would never be able to, or we would really struggle to get any good imagery of anything that is um, hundreds of millions of light years away. This certainly would be very, very small. Um, whereas what we're allowed, what we're able to do with the radio antenna is pick up signals from real deep space. And one in particular, 
particular that we picked up recently was a very high radio emission galaxy um, called Cygnus A. And Cygnus A is one of the brightest radio signals in the night sky and sits about 800 million light years away from us. So it's, it's incredible that we can use this technology to look deeper into the universe and analyse the universe in greater detail at these uh, incredible distances. Okay, in this next part of the podcast, we're going to find out more about the radio telescope as uh, myself and Dan teleport to the uh, Kilda Observatory itself, as if by magic. We're in your natural habitat here. We're uh, we're on on the observatory on on the on the. The sun deck on the observatory. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because it is actually designed to look like a ship sailing off into the night sky and it's supposed to give you the feel of being on a ship and coming on board a journey when you come to the observatory. So, Well, to be fair, it's more stable than most ships I've been on and that has to be a good thing. You should see it in 100 mile an hour winds. Well, not that we get that many, but... (laughs) (laughs) It is a fairly chilly night tonight, but the reason that we're out and about, and I'll try and keep the wind off the uh, microphone as much as I can, is that um, Kielder Observatory have got a new addition, and this is something we've been talking about for a year, actually, um, that... Uh, you've been getting a, going to be getting a radio telescope, and and it's it's just been a, a block of clonk concrete for for much of that time, yeah. uh, but now finally you have a new addition to the landscape of Kielder. Tell us um, tell us the backstory about how how this came to be. Yeah, so it was a project which is actually being down. Well, the actual piece of kit's been donated by a chap called Lord Tanlaw, who's bought a few of these, as I understand, across the country, which is dotted around the place. And what you can do with uh, with radio antenna, which you can't as such do with visual astronomy, is you can use each individual uh, radio antenna to collect similar data and then put that data together to create like this huge piece of data uh, we call it interferometry um, so we can do that across a large space uh, across the entire country using telescopes like what we've got and this particular telescope is looking at radio waves and radio waves are interesting because we can we can see radio waves from the far reaches of space that we can't visually see for example um, quasars are on the edge of our visible horizon it's not stuff that you can easily observe with just a regular telescope but with a radio antenna we can look at these objects um, because they emit radio signals radio waves and of course the benefit of radio astronomy is that it doesn't rely on it being clear and in the UK Oh, of course, we, we know we get cloudy. We're a little island. Um, so we can look through those clouds on nights where it's a little bit cloudier and still show people stuff uh, in the far reaches of space. Light and radio signals that have travelled for hundreds of millions of years through space and been received by our lovely uh, ornament. It looks like a great ornament, uh, but our lovely dish that's up there. Yeah. The other night I was sat um, just playing with it really and seeing what we can see with it and there was a particular object that I pointed it towards and I didn't really know what to expect but what I got was 
Uh, absolutely. It was the first time I've really been taken back by something in a very long time. Um, it produces a, a, a chart of colours, and the difference in colours uh, relates to the difference in intensity of radio signal. So if you imagine you have this uh, almost like uh, arrangement of, of collage of colours, almost like a thermal camera when you point it towards a, an object. And um, I got back these two balls of light very close to each other. And these were huge amounts of radio signals being emitted by a galaxy 800 million light years away. I mean, that is the most distant thing that I have ever observed. Uh, 800 million light years is just such a, an astonishing distance. And, and put that in context, where, how old's the Earth? Where, where's the Earth in that 800 million light years? Yeah, so Earth, Earth, well, Earth is four and a half billion years old. Um, So you're like almost, what, a fifth of the way... The fifth, it's been travelling through the universe for a fifth of uh, Earth's existence, which is fantastic. Okay, well, shall we go and have a look at it? And um, I mean, obviously, it's difficult for us with the medium of a podcast to show you it. Although, if you have a certain device at this point you will see a picture of it on your device, if it works. Terms and conditions apply on that. Uh, if not, if you go to the Kielder Observatory social media pages, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you'll see a picture of it there, I'm sure, and uh, on the website and, and all that kind of thing. And, of course, you can come uh, yourself and, and see it for yourself. Um, let's go and have a look and, and make it uh, make some noises. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> so we're currently underneath the radio telescope, and it's moving. Where's it pointing? It's, it's pointing at the moon at the moment. Um, and the, the reason why I pointed it at the moon is because the moon is a, a great reflector of radio uh, signals from the sun. Of course, it's reflecting sunlight, but also uh, radio uh, emissions from the sun as well. And it's stopped. So now it's taking an image, and it'll collect a little bit of data there for a second or so, and then it'll move to another point and start to collect it again. So, Dan, now we're actually inside out of the wind and um, we're looking at the screen now. Yeah, I think this is one of the most sciencey screens that you could come into contact with at the observatory. It's like, this is mega science. Look at those graphs and things and colours. In terms of hard science, we can look at the sun, analyse the sun. We can look at gas clouds, hydrogen gas clouds, analyse those. We can look at uh, the hydrogen in our Milky Way, measure the rotational speed. There's a few basic things that we can do, but there's a few uh, additional things that we can do with it, which isn't isn't the norm, isn't stuff that um, I guess we would stereotypically think about when we think about a radio antenna and what it can do. It, it has the capability of being able to um, tune into satellite radio frequencies, um, so we can look at satellites, we can um, look at other sources of radio frequencies or radio emissions, things like black holes, quasars, um, rem- supernova remnants as well, uh, which are always quite interesting. In fact, the supernova remnant, uh, the Crab Nebula, was the first one that we took with this, and it seemed apt to do so because it's one of the most famous radio frequencies uh, or one of the most famous discoveries in radio frequencies, I guess. Uh, the Crab Nebula is uh, it's awesome. It was the first pulsar discovered by, of course, Jocelyn Bell Brunel. The funny thing is with that actual thing is it's been discovered a few times. So it was uh, it was witnessed by Charles Messier in the 1700s. 
Charles Messier was a comet hunter. And uh, he, he, when he was observing the sky, he found some objects which he thought were comets, but they stayed in that one position all the time. And so they were kind of a little bit of a vexing uh, distraction for him when he was looking at the sky. So he started to make a catalogue, which we now refer to as the Messier catalogue. And this is where these M numbers come from, M1, M2, M3, all the way up to M110. And um, M1 is the Crab Nebula. And it's because when you see the Crab Nebula through an eyepiece, it does kind of look like it has a bit of a tail to it. It's a cloudy tail type thing. So he, he wrote about that in the 1700s. Then a few years later in the 1800s, an astronomer in Ireland called um, uh, William Parsons had a really big telescope, a big 72-inch telescope that he built in his back garden, which was three stories high, you know. Sometimes astronomers go a bit crazy with their kit. This guy did. <laughs> um, and it's still there today, and you can go see it. It, it, was one of the, it was the world's largest telescope at the time for about 50 years. And um, he turned his telescope towards this patch of sky that Messier had referenced, and also that was written about in Chinese... Uh, observations from around about 1054 AD and what the Chinese had seen essentially was a big bright star that appeared in the night sky but was also visible during the daytime and it was super bright and then started to diminish in brightness and then disappeared over a course of a few months of course 1054 AD you would write about that and um, so they did and uh, so he turned his attention towards that patch of sky that they referenced and the patch of sky that Charles Messier was talking about and what he saw was what he described as looking like a horseshoe crab and the horseshoe crab must have been everywhere at the time because it was only discovered a few years prior um, so he referred to it as the crab nebula and that's where it gets its name from then fast forward time a little bit further into the 1900s mid-1900s uh, Jocelyn Bell Burnell is doing a PhD and um, switches on her antenna and, uh, and, and receives this periodic radio signal uh, which turns out to be a pulsar and it was the Crab Nebula again it was uh, the, the pulsar Do you think that radio astronomy probably will be the, the way that we find other life? I think probably not. And I think that's purely because of the way that we've evolved uh, or, or, or our view on the universe has evolved, really. Particularly with new kit like the James Webb Space Telescope and, and stuff like that. That gives us um, ways of being able to analyse the composition of atmospheres around planets, which is a huge uh, deal, particularly when we're talking about looking for life. Um, but what I find interesting about radio astronomy in, in that context is that it's always the one which has been referenced as being, oh, look, we found a signal that we don't know where it's come from, the little green men signal or the wow signal, whatever that might be. These things have always been attributed to, to, to the search for extraterrestrial life, and I think that's really interesting. Um, because, of course, with radio signals, it's not a case of using your big telescope to look around the sky you've got to be pointing your telescope in the direction of the object that's emitting the radio signals at precisely that time to capture them. And you might point it there 10 minutes later and it's gone. But then another 24 hours later, it might be there again. Um, so it's quite interesting and mysterious because we can't see it. Um, it's, it's, it's a dark art, I think, radio astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> but 
one that you're learning yeah, quickly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so, yeah, I guess. And for, um, obviously, beyond um, just, you know, visitors and, and, and yourselves here at the observatory at Kielda, that this, um, it, you know, all in good time and, and so on, will be a facility that can be used um, as part of the outreach programs as well um for example you know schools or universities and, and places like that might be able to um access some of the data that that it can um that it can see and and, and be able to sort of do their own investigations and experiments and uh research into into space in however they however they need yeah absolutely that's that's one of the main focuses with it really is to is to allow um people uh, away from the observatory access to the the radio telescope um, remote access is now within our capability so we can offer that to universities and we can use it as part of our school program and um, what we're doing now is is mapping the moon that, during the daytime we've got the the sun out if we're teaching in a school uh, it's reasonable to say that we can start imaging the sun uh, using our radio antenna during the daytime um, and that'll produce a lovely orb of, of light in the middle of our map and such. And then we can start to talk about uh, the way that uh, different sources of light around our universe, which we talk about quite heavily in schools, actually. We talk about the electromagnetic spectrum uh, quite heavily. So it gives us a way of being able to physically demonstrate that as well. It's interesting, though, because radio astronomy, other than, of course, Strodrell Bank, uh, it's it's not really a massive part of the science communication we don't we don't talk about it much we've got films about it of course contact heavily radio astronomy related film and um, golden eye it's not really a radio related film but arecibo is in it so that's that takes a box um so but it's not something that is is particularly in the in the public eye it's it's learning about radio astronomy um so that that's that's going to give us a really interesting um thing to talk about i think that other people aren't talking too much about well people are certainly talking about the new radio telescope at kielder observatory including itv time tees who came to visitors to take a look for themselves here though they have a new tool in their armory a radio telescope that can look deep into the universe day or night whatever the weather they did a fantastic job of that report, and you can see it for yourself on the ITV Time Tees website. If you go to it and type in Kielder, or indeed have a look on our social media channels, you should be able to see it. They lit the dish up this beautiful shade of purpley pink, and it looks absolutely stunning. Now, the reporter in that piece was Tom Barton, and uh, he was having a, a full experience because he arrived there at three o'clock in the afternoon with the intention of seeing the sunset, which didn't quite happen, and uh, stayed for the entire duration until uh, very late into the night and uh, they got some terrific shots and I had a chat with Tom uh, to find out his impressions of Kielder Observatory and that new radio telescope. Yeah, we were saying kind of irrespective of what it contributes is actually just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful object, isn't it? But yeah, you know, we're here to, to have a look at it and to you know report on the fact that it's been, been added to the observatory and it strikes me that actually, you know, for an attraction like this, as you as you develop the use of the radio telescope over time, you know, it does guarantee that people who come here will be able to see something, even if the weather is a bit rubbish. So, 
you know, as something to have here. It's, it's clearly a fabulous addition and, um, you know, a fabulous addition to a place which is rightly kind of admired, you know, across the region and across the country. So your, your overall impression of, of the night sky this evening, because we, we are able to see the stars and, and all that kind of thing, and I think they are sort of twinkling much more brightly now after a, a damp start, but it's, it's cleared up just perfectly, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. We were here very early today. We came up uh, about half past three because we wanted to, well, we were hoping to film the sunset, <laughs> which, yeah, <laughs> we filmed <laughs> it getting dark in the rain, but, you know, in a way that helps tell the story, doesn't it? Because because you know the part of the point of this story is the fact that this telescope now this radio telescope does allow you to uh, to see something even when the weather's weather's not great uh, but you know after a very very wet and rainy and windy and grim start you know the skies have cleared and it is it is just stunning out there it really is you know like you say it's it's twinkly the moon is so bright tonight it's almost causing light pollution <laughs> but the uh you know the, the stars are, are stunning and you know i've not had a chance yet to actually much have much of a look through a telescope because we've been busy but you know even just with the naked eye you can see so much it's incredible that's time T's news reporter tom barton who came to kielder observatory um just earlier in november to take a look at the new radio telescope and you can see that report on the time T's website if you uh, search for kielder observatory it will undoubtedly pop up and it, you'll know which one it is because the radio telescope is the main image and it's all like a, a pinky purpley colour it looks absolutely stunning so do have a look at that if you get chance and that brings us to the end of the Kielder Observatory podcast for November and the start of December um, enjoy the night sky there's lots to look out for and we'll be back soon with another update uh, in December of the, the things that are going to be happening as we head in towards the new year so enjoy your stargazing take it easy out there and of course don't forget to share any of your pictures and experiences with us on our social media feeds on instagram facebook and twitter we'd love to hear from you and keep an eye on those as well for details of any upcoming events and always with the last minute cancellations as well because we realize that things are getting booked up quite uh, quite a lot uh, at kielder observatory and it's very hard at short notice to, to book yourself on any of the uh, upcoming sessions however what with the way things are we are regularly getting uh, fairly short notice cancellations uh, people getting positive covid tests and things like that so when those tickets become available the little tip is keep your eye out set your alerts up for our social media feeds particularly on facebook and uh, we will share on there if anything uh, becomes available at short notice and uh, you can come up and see the new radio telescope for yourself and that's all from the Kielder Observatory podcast more online at kielderobservatory.org and we'll speak to you soon